We have a lot of homegrown people at Barcelona. I'm very proud of that as something I pride myself on as a leader is like bringing the people up underneath me that then become, you know, those future leaders. Welcome to Media Sales Confidential, where we get the inside information from some of the world's most respected and innovative leaders. I'm Matt Bartles, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Deirdre Lester, CRO of Barstool Sports. Let's go. So, Deirdre, thanks so much for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to be here, Matt. You have been a leader in media for over 20 years. You've been a digital pioneer. You've worked in both established and startup environments. You've been at CNET, ESPN, Rivals.com, MLB, and now Barstool. Safe to say that you've pretty much been at the front of all of the digital world from the beginning of your career. Why don't we start there? Why did you decide to make a career in media sales? First of all, saying that I've been doing this 20 years is like, wow. I didn't seek out necessarily a career in sales. I came out of college with not really a good clue of what I was going to do, but I moved out to to San Francisco. It was very late 90s. And what was happening at the time in, in the media industry was the digital boom was like happening, right? And and I was interested in advertising and marketing. I had, you know, been kicking around at, you know, interviews at a bunch of advertising agencies. The internet was really taking off. But I ended up meeting some folks, got introduced to the management team at CNET, and I uh, just jumped into a company that we they were hiring like people hand over fist at the time. So mm-hmm. it was just kind of a a great job at a cool digital company. We called them dot-coms back then. And, <laughs> you know, everyone in San Francisco was having a cool dot-com job. Everything from com to pets.com and amazon.com, which was a bookstore at the time. So that's how I got in. I was working as the executive assistant to the head of sales. So I was around her and the whole sales organization all of the time. And I just naturally gravitated towards that. And, and I loved it. And, and I think from the very beginning, it was something I knew I wanted to do and pursue. And so I just happened to be fortunate to land in a place where not only did I get inserted at a very early stage into, I think, one of the best sales organizations of the time in digital media, there was a lot of really seasoned former print professionals there who did a lot of training. So I, you know, at a time where a lot of startup companies weren't really giving any employees formal training mm-hmm. at all, probably, you know, CNET really invested in, in a lot of these like sales trainings and sales competitions and yep. I'm super competitive. So it was a really fun environment to be part of. And that just got me hooked onto it from a very early age. But you were the executive assistant to the head of sales at CNET. How did yeah, you become so- a salesperson? Uh, you know, I worked for her for a year or two, maybe. And, you know, they were, again, there was the sales team was growing. Danielle took me under her wing and took me everywhere she went. So I got to actually get out from behind my desk and the computer and go into meetings and see, you know, what it's like to be out there pitching clients, fielding questions and objections. CNET was a very evangelizing company at the time because not a lot of marketers truly understood digital media. We really were at the time, like pioneering the forefront of it us and a few other companies like Yahoo. And so it was an exciting sell. It was really fun and you had to learn a lot. And then you had to kind of translate that knowledge to the customers. And I wanted to skip all the levels in between what I was doing and that. And so I never really followed the track of, you know, 
go from the executive assistant to the coordinator, the account manager, to eventually making your way into sales. I just raised my hand and said, look, I want to be in sales. Yep. I'll do inside sales. That's fine. I need, I know I need to learn and cut my teeth there, but you know, I really wanted to be part of the, the sales team. Like I mentioned earlier, they had these competitions or, or pitch contests and I raised my hand and said, I wanted to participate in it. And at the time, you know, wow. I'd never done anything like that before, really. So kind of throwing my hat in the ring to participate in that, I think, was a signal to some of the sales leadership that, hey, she's really willing to put herself out there. Let's give her a chance. And that went well. And I landed an inside sales job and then kind of worked my way up. That's great. So you're in the EA. You heard some pitches. You're like, I can do that. I can do that. And I can do that better than you. <laughs> give me a shot. Yeah, maybe not better, but I knew I could do it and uh, I wanted to do it. So yeah. it was, uh, So where'd you go from there? You know, I worked at CNET for uh, a little over five and a half years. I was there uh, when they opened the New York office and I raised my hand. I was originally from New York and the East Coast. And so I wanted to get back here eventually. So I came with a small group of folks to help kind of establish CNET sales presence in the New York office. That came at a very good time because when I think, you know, around 2000, 2001, the dot-com bubble is bursting and a lot of these digital companies had hired fast and had to let a lot of people go. But we were this small and mighty office in New York that was really establishing a brand that had been very West Coast heavy. And now we were on Madison Avenue getting into, you know, more blue chip marketers, established media buying agencies. So we were sort of protected to a degree from all of that. It was a really great company and I was doing well, but a recruiter had reached out to me about an opportunity to go work at ESPN.com. And I tell this story because a lot of folks think, oh, well, from that point on, once I left to go to ESPN, I've stayed on the sports track the entire time. Yep. But I was not looking for a job in sports. I just got really enamored by the idea that like, wow, now these mainstream television companies are taking digital seriously. So that was exciting. The other thing that was exciting about it was, you know, in sports, CNET was a B2B or a B2C, but all tech all the time, like a consumer report. So my customers then were awesome. They were Dell, they were HP, yep. or IBM, but they were all tech and consumer electronics. And what ESPN presented to me was an opportunity to go talk to big consumer packaged good brands, automotive brands, and really kind of break into new categories. So I took that opportunity and also to learn more on the traditional and television side, because, you know, coming up in digital, I didn't really have that exposure. So that yeah. was something I, I really wanted to kind of get into and learn. So you're a brand new salesperson. You go from EA to salesperson at CNET by winning a competition. Then you take that experience, leverage it to get a digital position at ESPN, where they're really starting to break out and build out their digital infrastructure and their digital sales as an AE. Then what happens? ESPN was a great training ground for sports. They had at the time integrated digital and television and print to work together more collaboratively. I think we were way ahead of our time. But I did get that opportunity to get in close with the TV sales folks and integrated marketing team that were putting together big events like Monday Night Football and the X Games, everything else that they were building out. So learn a little bit about digital media or television print, big events, sponsorship. My heart was in digital though. And I just really, I think coming from CNET, like I had that digital DNA that was like, I'm going to, I'm going to continue down this path in the digital media space. And I'm not going to jump to cable TV that seemed very backwards to me. So at the time though, uh, all of the money was in linear, right? 
was. Big, it, big it really budgets, was. Big the deals. opportunities were presenting themselves to make that jump, but I wanted to stay with what I was doing. I also knew that like, look, we were very pioneering at, at, at CNET and even ESPN.com. There weren't a lot of folks ahead of me in right. terms of knowledge and experience in digital. So why go into something where, you know, I had to start from the bottom and work my way all the way up when I'm already at the front line of something that, you know, I believed and, and knew to be the future. So yep. I was approached at the time and had met a gentleman named Shannon Terry. Shannon was the CEO of Rivals.com, a small company based out of Nashville, Tennessee, that was you know starting to really flourish in the college football and basketball recruiting space. Really niche when you think about that from where I had been, but immediately struck me as like just an incredible person, leader, visionary entrepreneur. And he felt similarly like, hey, you'd be a great fit for what we're trying to do, which is now take this brand, put a national front on what was a bunch of college football recruiting message boards and sites essentially that were for the individual schools, but give it that rivals.com national front and go sell to national brand advertisers and help grow the revenue for the site. So I took that leap which was a big leap. And Shannon, you know, put a lot of faith in me. Um, I was a senior account executive at ESPN.com doing quite well, but had never really been in that position of leadership uh, where I'm hiring a team and building out a staff. And he gave me that opportunity to do that at Rivals.com. And it was fun. It was was hard. Uh, It was very challenging. I definitely felt over my skis at moments. And when you leave a place like ESPN, where everybody wants to meet with you and will take your calls. And then you're kind of the lone ranger out there trying to get meetings for rivals.com. Suddenly people who were once your friends aren't returning your calls as quickly. And you really have to fight harder for those meetings. So you went from a senior AE at ESPN to rivals.com and SVP position. Yes. So carrying the bag to SVP, way different responsibilities, strategy now, reporting to the board. And presumably this is relatively still early in your career. Yeah. I was like 25 years old. It was, it was very early. I was young. Again, Rivals was down in Brentwood, Tennessee, which is just outside Nashville. And everyone was based there. I opened a, you know, small office in New York city and hired a sales team there, small sales team. And we had some folks on the West coast as well. So I was kind of reporting back to the the headquarters, getting down there at least once a month and spending a week, you know, in their offices and getting to staying close to the management team, staying close to the content production team, thinking about how we scale the business. I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine going from selling to being an SVP. Were you ready? Probably not. <laughs> I think it was the thing that it was the leap I took that really propelled my career and it worked out. You know, we had a great team. We had a lot of fun. We won a lot of business. And ultimately, within under four years, we were acquired by Yahoo Sports for just under $100 million. Wow. So there was that moment of this, we made it, Amen. we did it. <laughs> and then, oh, wait, now what? Do you remember your first deal? I'm guessing you went from big, big deals at ESPN to any deal is a good deal and at a startup. You're like, all yes, business is I good do. business. I do. I remember we had an advertiser come in to sponsor, I think it was like our bowl game coverage, which, you know, they outside of the message board recruiting, they didn't really have that. So they're like, okay, so you need us to 
take one of our editors and write full game articles and put them on the homepage and package that up. And then you can get a sponsor of that. Yes, I can. So we did that. I believe the spend of that advertiser was like somewhere between 25 and $50,000. And I remember the celebration. Like yeah. I just remember the people who, you know, I had emails with that helped <laughs> me work on that. The graphics people, the CFO, obviously the CEO, everyone just like emailing me like, this is so great. This is so exciting. What do we need to do to make this work for the, the partner? And, and I was like, wow, like the last deal I closed at ESPN was a seven figure deal with a huge national advertiser. It was one of the largest deals we had done at ESPN.com at the time with a brand we had never worked for with before. And no one even knocked on my door to yeah. congratulate me. So, you know, it was just such a stark difference in terms of, you know, the impact that my team and myself were able to have on the business. That meant that that money was reinvested right into the business. Okay, now we can go hire this many more editors. We can invest in the, the business and continue to scale it. Where do you need us to invest? So yep. it was really something that struck me as like, wow, the losses were also harder hit, yeah. you know? It was a little bit of a educating the team down in Tennessee, we are literally the little David among many Goliaths. Here. Yeah. So you start out in the startup, stay in the digital space, decide to go to the, the mothership, stay in digital there instead of going into a much safer multi-product sale, transition to an SVP of Rivals.com. And the next thing you know, you're named one of the 25 most powerful women in media by Forbes, along with Condoleezza Rice, Serena <laughs> Williams. Jeannie Buss. How did that impact your life? Yeah, that came a little later. Um, you know, I left Rivals Yahoo Sports once we were acquired to MLB. And MLB was interesting because MLB was the, obviously, America's pastime right. sport, a huge uh, entity of its own. But the digital business was very much managed separately still. It was treated as kind of a more entrepreneurial startup environment. It felt like a digital media company inside this mothership, a little bit like what ESPN had been like, but even more innovative and advanced on. They were the first to be live streaming games. What you're talking about in that Ford, Forbes designation, which is such an honor and, and was pretty shocking, was when I was at a company called Whistle Sports. Whistle Sports was, you know, a company that when I went there was very like just post series A, had not generated any revenue yet and were looking for their path to monetization. They had built a network of influencers that were becoming quite powerful on YouTube and other social platforms. They had built out an original content team and really just, you know, needed someone to come in and find a path to revenue. So it was a very startup company. Yeah, that was a, just a great honor. I got a lot of attention from that, from friends and peers in the industry. Oh, I bet. <laughs> I mean, how, how often does that happen? 25 most powerful women in sports. Okay, I'll take that. <laughs> yeah, right. That's pretty good. So then you took that and then you said, okay, there's this thing at Barstool. It's got low double digit revenue and less than a handful of sellers. So challenge presented. What in the heck made you take that on? A couple things. I think similar to other places I'd gone, particularly ESPN, I looked around at the young people I was working with and around and what they're doing, talking about and posting on their social. And Barstool was showing up everywhere. At the time, you know, the anthem of Saturdays are for the boys was like 
exploding and all my people would go away for the weekend and come back and I'd see on their social, like Saturdays are for the boys with pictures of all of their friends at the beach or the Jersey shore and wearing the t-shirts and and hats. And and I just thought, wow, this is like an incredible brand because it's not just a place where people go to read or watch their content. It's literally like a lifestyle brand that people want to represent that they are part of or they are a fan of. Um, That struck me because when you really look around the media industry, like that doesn't really exist anywhere else. Shernan Group had come in and bought a you know, majority stake in the company. Their reputation obviously precedes them. They had hired Erica Nardini as CEO. And you know, I had not actually worked or met Erica before, but I had did my homework on her and, and was so excited to have an opportunity to meet her. And we were also put together by mutual connections. And it just seemed like, let's at least sit down and talk about what this, what you're planning to do with this business. And those factors all were contributors to why I felt like this was like the greatest next opportunity for me. And then you took it on. And so now where is Barstool? So outside of the social platforms, there's many organizations that are racing to build subscription models. You're a little bit unique right now. Can you give us the Barstool 101 overview? Yeah, I mean, Barstool is the most influential and fastest growing brand in media for young audience. We are Barstool Sports, but we are also very diversified in our content from sports, lifestyle, female brands, entertainment, and pop culture. So we're really hitting on all those genres. Um, It's actually one of the things I love about Barstool, because if you look at where I came up from, it is a lot of sports media. It is a lot of, you know, 80% male audience, 20% female audience, much more male-dominated culture, both the audiences and the internal cultures, which is great. Fine. I loved it. I had a great time. But Barstool, what was unexpected to me is after joining, we started diversifying our talent a great deal. The other thing is, look, like Barstool is known for a lot of things. We have some of the top podcasts in the country. So we're very strong in the audio space and our set of competitors there are different than in sports media and sponsorship. We have a massive events business where we're running kind of a nationwide amateur golf tournament right now. And we show up at all the major sports and cultural tent poles and put our stake in the ground and get our fans to come to us. So there's an events business, there's a multimedia business, there's a huge e-commerce business and a licensing business that's really been growing at a rapid clip in the last two years. That's another big reason, Matt, why I came here is, you know, look, I predominantly have been in the digital media and advertising and sponsorship space. And I love that. And I always believe that that will be a juggernaut. But when you're at a company that that is their only form of revenue and there's any kind of market downturn, that can be a real problem. Yep. No other way to dial it up. What I liked about Barstool was there was the other irons in the fire. The e-commerce business could balance out the ad business if we have a quarter that's off. And we saw that in the last year, huge dips in advertising spending back in the second quarter during the start of the pandemic. And our e-commerce business really flourished during that time. So we ended up coming out as a company at the end of the year, beating our annual revenue goals. It just wasn't the same media, the revenue mix that we originally sought out to go get. But when you first got there, weren't you primarily just podcasting audio? And now you've got all these different diversified revenue streams in less than three years? E-commerce was huge when I got there and growing. And what we've done there and 
addition to scaling it is introduced, you know, it was a lot of t-shirts and hats and things like that. And now it's more premium products. And then also where we're going into retail. So we've partners like Dick's Sporting Goods and PGA Superstore that are now carrying Barstool merch. But the diversification of what you've been able to do has been incredible. How did you determine where to place your bets from the very beginning to where you are now? And one of the big things I saw, which was interesting, was Marcel's business was definitely, on the ad side, was definitely very heavy in audio. Podcast Network was was doing well. And digging into that a little bit, a lot of direct-to-consumer brands, a lot of challenger brands and, and DR brands. I saw that if we could dress up and clean up some of our content on the video side, we could draw in more blue chip advertisers and diversify them across not only audio, but video, social, and even experiential. We've been able to do that pretty successfully. And that's another thing is then even the direct consumer brands working with them to say, okay, you're having a lot of success in the Barstool audio space. How do we get you to expand? Because you're reaching a lot of people, but we also have a, a whole audience that you can reach here via cross-platform video, OTT, YouTube, all across all the social platforms. We're one of the largest and fastest growing brands on TikTok. We're bringing our brand partners there with us. So the idea that Barstool is sort of everywhere, and you sure. mentioned a lot of the other big media companies right now, everybody from NBC, you look at what they're doing is like using their bigger platform to drive everybody to pay for a subscription to Peacock. Like yeah. Barstool, we're sort of this large, unwired, untethered network that is everywhere. And we're working hard to map our ad solutions to that so that our brands can be everywhere with us so that they're not just with us here in a podcast or sponsoring this event that we're at down at the Super Bowl, that they can really surround everything we're doing with their message and be everywhere with our brands. Because a platform can change their algorithm on you at any time. You've got a lot of different irons in the fire with different revenue streams. You also have a pretty big challenge of working with a, a company that is in the public eye. That's very, very vocal. You've got Dave that's got a podcast on the business of Barstool. You've got a lot of personalities that you have to deal with and both an edgy, but also a giving reputation. How do you deal with the challenges, but also the opportunity of having that publicity out there? You know, the saying, uh, no publicity is bad publicity. (laughs) Our partners stay with us because they see the performance. They see the engagement that they don't see anywhere else. And we work really hard as an organization to really editorialize and, and bring our brand partners into our narrative in a way that makes them, a lot of them, synonymous with either Barstool or a particular franchise within our universe in a way that impacts their business in ways that they don't see from other media investments that they're making. So there'll always be detractors and folks who want to either point out something negative, but look at what's happened in the last year. I mean, the Barstool Fund and what Dave's been able to do for small businesses this year, you know, even just, you know, tonight he's hosting with Guy Fieri and an auction where they're Very raising cool. more money for the Barstool Fund to help small businesses who have really struggled to get through the pandemic. So a lot of the major media companies that normally would never have even covered Barstool, but never mind covered us in a positive light. So hopefully people see the good we do and not focus on like the comments taken out of context. When, when you have people for over a decade who've been trying to make people laugh and be funny and they're telling jokes and it's basically like a reality show and stand up company on the internet, not every joke is going to land. And sometimes things get said that later on when they come to light, don't 
look as great or right. don't look great at all. But things are great on that front. I don't worry about that too much. It's just fascinating. The the position that, that obviously you're in and the, the public nature and how you handle all of those different challenges that are outside of just other traditional challenges of a sales leader. So what are the most important factors of leading a revenue organization? I think meeting your goals, obviously, I'm yeah. always very, very revenue focused first. And, and, and we have not only very lofty revenue goals, but also very high expectations from a margin perspective. So it was a handful of people when I got here and now it's over 50 people that work for me in some capacity, whether that be sellers or account management and client right. solutions. What is your uh, total purview? Uh, what is all under your umbrella? I know that as organizations scale, you probably have everything on top of you and then eventually you're going to start parsing things off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really sales marketing, branded content and licensing. So we're now building out or have built out a sales development team that are constantly out seeking new opportunities and new partners for us. So the team has gotten more sophisticated over time. The client solutions team has been a very big focus in the last six to eight months. And yep. We had hired a VP of client solutions to really make sure that when we bring on a new partner, they immediately feel like they have that white glove service that they should have given yep. what the investment levels are and how we want them to feel about their partnership with us. And so that the sellers can continue to go out and nurture new partnerships. That's, that's the challenge. So given that you're always bringing in new product, I mean, you've got new products all the time, right? How do you get your sellers up to speed? Is it a specialist? Is it training? Is it go figure it out? Cause that's what I did. <laughs> It's a little bit of all of the above, but we are coming to the realization that with the amount of ad product that we are now bringing to market, it is important that we are doing a lot more internal training and, and just, you know, there's new people coming in all the time. So how are we making sure they get up to speed? What's that onboarding process? We are going to be investing in more just like basic training. You know, I mentioned earlier in my career, one of the things that I was fortunate to just have given to me at, at CNET was sales training. And that was done informally and formally, but always happening. We have kind of just brought people in and been yeah. like, here you go, sure, sink sure. or swim. As something I pride myself on as a leader is like bringing the people up underneath me that then become, you know, those future yep. leaders. You know, I think that a great leader doesn't necessarily have followers. A great leader creates the next generation of leaders. So when I look back at places I've worked in the past or some of the people I even work with now, like I, I have high expectations for where they will go on to be in their careers. I love that. A great leader creates the next generation of leaders. That is fantastic. You've got scaling like you're scaling, growing as fast as you can, can hide a lot of sins and you just can't slow down because you've got to keep bringing the revenue in, thinking about that sales operations, thinking about the additional support roles. That's also a challenge of just staying ahead of the curve, right? So making sure that you're, you can deliver on what you're selling and then balancing the strategizing, balancing, staying close with the client, balancing internal strife or being the therapist for folks. How do you determine where to spend your time? That's a great <laughs> question. And there is never enough time. And then by the way, throw in life into that, right? Like throw right. in the fact that I'm a mom, I've got a husband, I've got a family, I like to travel, like all those things. But in terms of day to day, you know, I mentioned 50 people, you know, 17 of those people are frontline sellers. 12 of those people are direct reports into me. I try to do weekly or biweekly one-on-ones with everyone on my team. 
direct reports, but I also like to like spot check in with someone who like, we have an account executive who recently decided he wanted to move from the East coast to the West coast. And, you know, I'm like, Hey, I haven't even checked in with him in like four months. I should just give him a call and see how things are going. You mentioned customers. Like I like to be very customer facing. It's important to me to be out in the field, talking to customers, making sure that I'm looking at, you know, who are our top customers, who are sort of our emerging growth partners that we're looking to to really scale it up with and, and am I connected to them and I'm talking to them. It is a balance and there's no perfect balance. So I'm constantly feeling like I'm like 80% supporting right. everybody and I could be doing a better job. But And it's up to you to monetize all of those different personalities, franchises, talent. That's quite a bit. What excites you the most? What Barcel collectively is doing and what the individual franchises are all doing is kind of zeitgeist, I think. <laughs> I think that, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now, people will look back on this group of personalities, characters, and this brand as what was the zeitgeist of this generation. So for me, it's like incredibly fun to be a part of. The talent are so unique at this company. They're so fun, funny, and talented. And so the opportunity to be as close to them as we are is really unique. I'd say one of the biggest challenges is as we've grown, we have so many different franchises, so much talent. It's really hard to stay on top of what they're all doing. I mean, I'm not going to miss a single episode of the Dave Portnoy show just because there's always a chance he's mentioned our team and I want to know about that. But also I just am very intrigued by what he's saying, but you can't consume it all. So there's a balance there too. Like how do you stay on top of everything we're doing as a brand while running this massive team and also making sure there's enough balance of like being out in the external world and making sure staying in touch. And then that's a great point. So you're still focused on everything internal, whatever. How do you deal from an industry perspective? How do you stay aligned with what's going on with the industry? You know, this year has actually been interesting, Matt. I know you're a frequent presenter at the IAB CRO meetings that they have been putting on since the start of the pandemic. And we've been IAB members for about a year and a half, two years. And one of the things I'll credit them with is during the pandemic, they did really step up to really help leaders in the industry stay connected, work through some of the issues that everyone is having. And then also they've brought together the buy side and the sell side with frequency. They've brought folks like your team in to give some insights into what's going on. And that has been really helpful. And I actually really hope they'll continue to do that going forward because it's not something that I participated. I don't think it existed before COVID, but it's maybe one of those things that ultimately can be seen as a silver lining, like thing that came out of this, that we all work a little more collaboratively together because otherwise it is hard to stay in touch with what's going on and know what's happening in the marketplace. But one thing that's really interesting to me right now is, you know, I go on those calls and there's a lot of talk about sort of third party data disappearing, cookie apocalypse happening. And what I always report back to our CEO, Erica, when I go on those calls is like, this is a very big problem for the industry and it's not my problem. So (laughs) For better or for worse, because we've done probably a mediocre job with our programmatic media, it just hasn't been the primary focus. We're not worried about the bottom dropping out on us at any given time out of our control. We live on a lot of other people's platforms. So you're right that like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok could make a change that could mean I have to change my entire strategy 
on a dime. But the fact that we're on so many platforms, I'm not worried necessarily that one is going to just like turn the lights off on us. Whereas this cookie apocalypse conversation is like super technical and super confusing to people in sales and it's just not something I, I lose tons of sleep over. So that's been a silver lining for us. That's good for you. I can tell you that I think other organizations are also going through that. And I think the pandemic helped accelerate those thoughts. Like we've got to get more diversified. We just can't put all the eggs in one basket. All right, let's talk about motivation and leadership. What's your leadership mantra? Don't be afraid to take risks. Go where, you know, there's no path. Don't look for the path of how to get to where you want to go. Like forge your own path, maybe leave a trail if you can. And then for others, you know, I think as a leader, I kind of mentioned you don't need followers. You need to want to like bring up other people and have a high degree of consideration for the people who work with you, around you and for you on how do you help them advance? So for me, I really do measure myself on how my team leads ultimately, where do they go on in in their careers after, you know, work with people forever. So looking back on that 20 years, I love to look at like, where are some of the people that I work together with and what are they doing now? And there's been a lot of successes there. So I'm always excited to to look at that. That's great. I've always said that if somebody's following you just because you have a higher title than them, then you're not going to be a leader very long because true leaders have other people at their peers or above respecting them and looking at them. And I love the thoughts of bringing up other leaders as, as the true north for your leadership style. So thank you so much for joining the Media Ad Sales Confidential Podcast, Yedra. As always, it was great to have you. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and never miss an episode. Share it with your friends. Thank you for listening, and that's the Inside Scoop.